When was the last time that life had you sincerely confused? When was the last time that life had you sincerely confused? Some of you were saying, oh, about 10 minutes ago. <laughs> Thanks for the reminder. Um, but I, I, I don't mean small confusion. I mean capital C confusion. Like, where is, where is life headed? What is it all about? Maybe something happened that didn't make sense uh, and still doesn't make sense, like that, that puzzle piece that you've tried a thousand times to fit and it still hasn't fit. Um, maybe the future is especially unclear, or maybe uh, worse, there are dark clouds forming uh, off in the horizon, and you can tell that. You know, every person spends time in, in seasons like these, uh, but they can be intensified for those of us here who claim to be Christians, because we claim that a sovereign creator is meticulously guiding all historical events and all personal events to a certain destination. We don't chalk things up to chance or fate or the leanings of the universe because those things don't exist. They don't have actual sway. The claim that everything is serving a larger divine purpose will inevitably mean that we will spend some time confused as God's people. We will scratch our heads and wonder what God is doing. Now, to believe that something is true does not mean that we know exactly how it is true in every case. And to say that I can't see or understand something is not to say that no one does or that God does not, right? I believe that God guides all things to his desired ends. But I don't pretend to know why the helicopter crashed or why pastors in Caracas struggle to, to live day to day. I don't pretend to know why those things are going on, but I do claim to know why Jesus of Nazareth was crucified outside of Jerusalem a few thousand years ago. So we're stuck with this partial access, with this fog that sometimes only allows us to see a few feet in front of our faces. And so the question is, what do we do with that? How do we deal with that not knowing? What do we do when we don't know what to do? Well, in our text today, in 1 Samuel 29, David finds himself in a very sticky spot. If you remember, he made this hasty decision a few chapters back to stop running from Saul, the, the king who was uh, trying to kill him, and he ran away from Saul by joining up with the Philistines, which were kind of a, a pagan people outside of God's people. He was tired of being chased. He was tired of being on the brink of death. He was just tired of being tired. He actually admits to feeling hopeless in, in uh, 1 Samuel 27.1 when he says, There is nothing better for me than, than that I should escape to the land of the Philistines. So he felt like he was out of options, so, and so he exercised the nuclear option. Just go to the Philistines. And so David and his 600 guys crossed over the uh, Philistia boundary. They joined up with a guy named Ashish, who was the king of a city named Gath. And Akshish is a, is a guy who he's cunning, and he saw the potential. There's a small mercenary army he now had with David and his men. And so he gave David and his men a city named Ziklag. It's a great name, by the way. Um, 
So David ends up with this city. He stays there for almost a year and a half. He earns the trust of this Philistine commander, king guy named Akshish. David lived there by uh, making raids on neighboring people. That's how he kind of funded uh, his life there. But David was a man who was living in two worlds at the same time, or trying to. On the one hand, he was the future king of Israel. And on the other hand, he was this hired mercenary for the Philistines. And eventually, those worlds were going to collide. And they collide in chapter 29. This chapter ends in confusion. Let's read it together. Why don't you go ahead and stand with me if you're able to. In reverence for the Word of God, I'm going to read out of the English Standard Version. Uh, We have some Bibles in the lobby. If you didn't bring one with you, you forgot it, uh, go ahead and grab one. Uh, And here's, we'll read all of chapter 29. It's 11 verses. Here's what it says. Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. As the lords of the Philistines were passing on by hundreds and by thousands, and David and his men were passing on in the rear with Akshish, the commanders of the Philistines said, What are these Hebrews doing here? And Akshish said to the commanders of the Philistines, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been with me now for days and years? And since he deserted to me, I have found no fault in him to this day. But the commanders of the Philistines were angry with him. And the commanders of the Philistines said to him, Send the man back, that he may return to the place to which you have assigned him. He shall not go down with us to battle, lest in the battle he become an adversary to us. For how could this fellow reconcile himself to his Lord? Would it not be with the heads of the men here? Is not this David of whom they sing to one another in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands? Then Akshish called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, you have been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign, for I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord's do not approve of you. So go back now, and go peaceably, that you may not displease the lords of the Philistines. And David said to Akshish, But what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day that I entered your service until now, that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord the king? And Akshish answered David and said, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, the commanders of the Philistines have said, He shall not go up with us to the battle. Now then, rise early in the morning with the servants of your Lord who came with you, and start early in the morning, and depart as soon as you have light. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines. But the Philistines went up to Jezreel. You can have a seat. Our text is short and straightforward. And here's just a brief outline we'll follow. It's in your notes there. David starts stuck. And we'll look at the context in verse 1 of kind of what's the background of this situation. Why why is this happening? In verses 2 through 5, we see that there's a way out uh, that is provided. uh, But despite jumping at the opportunity, there's stubborn protest, but eventual return. Returning to the city of, of Ziklag. Then we'll, we'll ponder what this chapter is really communicating to us. 
and talk about some implications from there. So let's start with where at the very beginning at verse 1. You know, if you're paying unusually close attention uh, to 1 Samuel, notice that 29.1 and 28.1 sound very similar, if you look at those just really quickly. And the author of 1 Samuel is retelling this segment of history out of chronological order. We know that because in chapter 28, verse 4, I believe it, it mentions Shunem, which is a city that's a bit further advanced than where they were at the time. And so 29 likely happens before the events of chapter 28. Okay, Again, this isn't a problem for biblical writers. They're not trying to just write rigidly chronological events. They're, they're weaving in themes and points and contrasts and different things literarily that they're expecting the reader to pick up on. But just so you know, um, the author is doing this purposefully. He's putting Saul and David next to each other in a contrast that we're going to see in the weeks to come. If you think about it like uh, a war movie, where one side of the war is shot and you understand what's going on with this side for, for a little bit, but at the same time, there's something happening on the other side, but you kind of just have to pan from one side to the next so you know what's going on, okay? That's essentially what's happening here. We're, we've, we've heard what's happened with Saul and this medium in chapter 28, and now we're, we're panning back to what's going on with David and the Philistines. Now, some stories create tension um, kind of throughout the story, Okay, while others kind of carry in tension from the very beginning. Um, thinking about it in football terms, um, some games uh, get tense because through the course of the game, there's back and forth, and you finally get down to the end, and there's a climactic point, and all of a sudden there's tension. But some games start with tension because there is an existing rivalry that's already taken place, right? So they're already kind of chipping at each other, and from the very beginning, there's kind of this this tension that's mounted because of the history. And this scene in 1 Samuel is more like the rivalry kind of tension. There's a lot assumed as we start this chapter that, that helps us understand what's the real um, angst of the story, what's the real problem of the story, okay? Now let's think about what that could be. What is, in, in verse 1, it says, Now the Philistines had gathered all their forces at Aphek, and the Israelites were encamped by the spring that is in Jezreel. David, the future king of Israel, is lined up with the Philistine army, preparing to attack the nation that he will supposedly be king of, and the nation for whom he's been protecting their king for chapters and chapters and chapters. Can you see the problem with this? I wonder what's going on in, in one, one commentator I read said, I hope there were antacids then, <clears throat> because David was taking a lot of them at that point. His two worlds are about to collide. There's no way out of this, it seems, right? He's stuck. He's a man without a home country. He's in no man's land. And his hasty decision to join the Philistines has now led to this collision that it seems like he can do nothing about. He's stuck. But thank God for pagan Philistine commanders, right? Look at verses 2 and 5. Fascinating. What's the way out? Well, these, these Philistine commanders, it says, watch, everyone kind of gets in their place, and they see Akshish coming up with David and his 600 guys, 
And they've got a question, and a fair question. What are these Hebrews doing here? (laughs) I'm sure Akshish's response, if you look at it, I'm not sure it helped much. He said to the commanders of the Philistines, uh, second half of verse 3, Is this not David, the servant of Saul, king of Israel, who has been now... I mean, he's just kind of feeding the problem by saying, Yeah, he, he was lined up with Saul. He has got some attachment to Israel. But he's been, with, he's been with me for a while, and so you can trust him, really. He's, he's an honorable guy. He's upstanding. And so these commanders just have a great response to poor, naive, or uh, trusting Akshish. They basically said, have you considered the possibility that David is playing you? Have you thought about that? What if he turns on us? Let's see, what's the one way that David could get back in the good graces of Saul, his king? I know the heads of the men around us, is what he says. You've heard the song, Akshish, right? Saul has struck down his thousands, but David his ten thousands, and those ten thousands were us, Akshish. What are you doing inviting him to fight here? Military leaders don't generally recommend hiring mercenaries to fight against their homeland because it's just a bad idea. And so thank God for godless pagan Philistine commanders. And so there's this way out. But look at the response as we see in verses 6 through 10. Again, this is a simple, curious chapter, right? But look at the strange responses of both Akshish and David. Akshish, in verse 6, called David and said to him, As the Lord lives, as Yahweh lives. Probably just kind of referring to David's God. He's inevitably heard about this God who David serves, and he just kind of throws him in on the list. It's kind of a, a sign of respect, but not necessarily worship of Yahweh, of the God of the Bible. As the Lord, this Lord of yours, lives, you've been honest, and to me it seems right that you should march out and in with me in the campaign. Like, I don't get what's going on here. They don't trust you. But Akshish is not ready to endanger his position, right? He does what you might expect. He complains about his comrades. And, but ultimately, uh, he says his hands are tied. But just notice the esteem that he has for David. He goes on, second half of verse 6. For I have found nothing wrong in you from the day of your coming to me to this day. Nevertheless, the Lord do not approve of you, so go back now and go peaceably. Even at the end, he says it again, half the ink of chapter 29 is Akshish defending David, ironically. He says in verse 9, I know that you are as blameless in my sight as an angel of God. Nevertheless, there's nothing I can do. My hands are tied. Notice the impact that David made on this man. It's incredible. You almost wonder if given a little bit of time, if David's leadership and personality and integrity in these things would have had him leading the Philistines as a nation. Curious. But then even more curious is David's response. After Akshish kind of explains, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Verse 8, David says to Akshish, but what have I done? What have you found in your servant from the day I entered your service until now that I may not go and fight against the enemies of my lord, the king? David's bent about it. He's mad he can't go 
with Akshish and fight. Now, you can take this a couple of ways, and commentators are all over the map with this, and it's really bizarre, I think, some of the ways that they take it. One, you could say, David is being loyal to this Philistine commander, and because he protected David, David really sincerely intends to protect him, and he's willing to even fight against the Israelites. It's kind of the first theory. The second one is that David was planning on turning on him like the Philistine commanders were worried about. And he's been in this like covert operation from the very beginning. He's buying time for a year and a half to finally get to his moment to strike. I think it's more option one, honestly. Because everything that David says in the, in the last two chapters only affirms his desire to support the Philistine commanders. I think some people want to think that David uh, is this noble figure that doesn't, doesn't think in wrong ways and can't despair of hope and can't just kind of say, ah, oh, forget it, I don't know what God's doing, Saul's hunting me down, I'm sick of it, I'm going to the Philistines, let him sort it all out. I think that's totally possible. I think David is capable of that. And I don't want rose-colored glasses to, for me to take what Scripture actually says that David says, not just in chapter 29, but in 28. If you look at 28, the very beginning, it says the same thing. In those days, the Philistines gathered their forces for war to fight against Israel. Verse 1, And Akshi said to David, Understand that you and your men are to go out with me in the army. There's not like a suggestion going on there. David said to Akshi, Very well, you shall know what your servant can do. And Akshi said to David, Very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. This special assignment this near and dear, this place reserved for those he trusts the most. Now, what's interesting about this text in chapter 29 is it doesn't tell us blatantly, oh, and David was like a spy, and he was hiding out, and he was going to turn. It just doesn't tell us. It kind of leaves it unresolved, which I think is an interesting move by the part of the author. In the end, it won't really matter but I think it does kind of add to the tension of the scene, like, what was David thinking? What was he going to do? Either way, option A or option B, David ends up disappointed. Because if he meant to really defend this Philistine commander, he wasn't allowed to. And he got put on the bench. But if he was trying to be stealthy about it, his whole plan just got, went up in smoke and now it got upended and he's got nothing. And he's sitting on the bench in that scenario. So either way, he's disappointed and confused about what God is doing. What a bizarre chapter. Aren't you glad that our church is committed to just preaching through all of Scripture? Because this would be a chapter that we would be tempted to pass over. Like, what is this teaching us? But look what happens in verse 11, just to wrap up the text. So David set out with his men early in the morning to return to the land of the Philistines, but the Philistines went up to Jezreel, and that's it. Fade to black. The text is done. No Hollywood ending. No, he comes charging out. No, I'm going to defend you anyway. Nope. He goes home. And that's it. David shows up to fight, he's not allowed to, then he goes home. And you're like, this is the shortest sermon ever. Sweet, perfectly tied for Super Bowl Sunday, way to go. <laughs> and if you're confused, I, 
I think you're in the right place. And I think that that's a good thing because it helps you identify with the people in this chapter. Everybody is confused at the end of chapter 29. Akshish doesn't know why the Philistine commanders won't let David fight. David's confused why he marched miles and miles and miles to go defend the Philistines and doesn't get the opportunity to either you know, blow the whole thing up or defend the guy who's defended him. The Philistine commanders are confused. Why in the world would Akshish bring 600 people to fight against their own countrymen? Everyone's confused, including us. So what is going on here? What is the point? Well, imagine walking back to Ziklag with David, hearing him talk to his fellow soldiers, thinking, what was that all about, guys? Why did God do that, of all things? What was the point of the last year and a half? Why would God drive me from Israel to the Philistines and now allow me to make good, not make good on those plans? I wonder how the battle's going. What's the future of Israel going to be? What's my future going to be? Am I going to be the king or not? And have you ever been there where you're just walking away, scratching your head, and you have no idea what's going on? Ever wondered if years have been wasted? Ever been totally perplexed that something occurred the way it did? Ever face something that only really made sense years and years and years later and maybe still doesn't? Sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes God helps us to understand his purposes after the fact. That season of suffering bears fruit that we never expected. A side effect, a consequence in someone's life Something we never would have expected occurs. Maybe a way of relating to the Lord opens up that you never would have chosen had it not been for whatever occurred. It, it may be that the fog doesn't completely lift, but looking back at the road you've traveled allows you to see signs of grace along the way. Signs that God was actually with you when you didn't know that he was. Signs of God's closeness, signs of God's divine intervention that you had no idea about when you were walking that path. Do you know of those kinds of things? Let's consider again David in 1 Samuel 29. Now, this text doesn't come out and say, and God was doing this, and God was doing that. The only reference, really, to the Lord is made by Akshish in passing. But, as David is lying on his cot at night, camped out with his army on the way back to Ziklag, maybe he kicked around the question that I raised earlier, on the, on, um, earlier in the sermon when I asked, what could have gone wrong if I had fought in that battle, why would God do this? Three things come to mind. If I fought in that battle, I would have been viewed as loyal to Akshish. And Akshish had already been interpreting my raids on the other nations as signs of loyalty to him. Look at 1 Samuel 27 verse 12. 
David is making those raids, and it says, And Akshish trusted David, thinking, He has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. If David had gone through with the battle, he would have been a lifelong servant of Akshish. Maybe God was keeping me from that. And that's the first rear view mercy that David might have noticed. Or number two, if I fought in that battle, what if, what if I came toe-to-toe with Saul? Haven't I been the one who's been insisting on not killing God's anointed? What if I had gone through with it? But even if I wasn't the one to do it, surely I would be guilty of participating with the Philistines in killing God's anointed king. How would I have lived with myself? Maybe God was keeping me from violating my conscience when I was so despairing of hope that I just said, oh, forget it, I'm just going to do whatever. And that's the second rearview mercy that David could have noticed. Number three, if I fought in this battle, how would the people of Israel have responded? Would they have even wanted me to be their king if they'd known that I was the one who fought against them and literally killed some of their people? David is very careful to keep a lid on these raids that he's doing. But surely he would have been found out if he had attacked Israel himself. Would he have been able to kill his own people? Maybe God was keeping me from staining my name so that I could be king one day. And a third rearview mercy appears. Do you see what's happening here? Well, David was frustrated and confused and puzzled with God's plan. His plan was saving David. It was keeping him. It was sparing him. It was leading him to where he needed to be. And all along, in David's confusion, God was saving him from himself, from the consequences of this hasty decision to join the Philistines, from anger towards the Israelites or the Philistines, from the moral impossibility of being loyal to two nations, from ruining his future as the king of Israel. While David was complaining about God's plan, God was doing good to him. God was intervening for him. And he didn't even know it. This leads us to our first implication or application point, and that's this. God reigns even in our confusion. God reigns even in our confusion. You see, when fog blocks us from seeing the mountain range, it doesn't mean the mountain range disappears. Because we can't see or know does not mean that God does not see or know. See, we have a vantage point, a limited perspective, a small window into reality. When God has this 360 bird's eye view, panoramic view of everything that's happening all the time, everything that you can know, He knows. Every domino that's going to fall as a result of a human decision, He knows. He meticulously understands. Every implication of every human decision, he is never surprised or unaware. This is our God. And so, friends, in your confusion, God still reigns. Think through the implications of this, this first implication. 
These are three kind of subpoints under the first one. The first one is that there's comfort in knowing that the one who needs to know already knows. There's comfort in, in knowing that the one who needs to know already knows. You know, kids arrive on planet Earth unaware of how to emote. You know, what's dangerous and what's scary and what's funny and what's weird or unexpected? And they just don't know. And so they watch how their parents react to things. And that teaches them a little bit about how they're supposed to react, right? So if they fall down and scrape their knee and their parents panic, guess what? The kid panics, right? And the kid screams. Someone tells a joke and their parents laugh and they kind of see that, then they start laughing because they don't quite know what's going on. It's funny, our kids come to us in a panic a lot of times because some gross injustice has been done, some Pokemon cards have been misplaced, or some awful crime against humanity. Um, and sometimes I just want to freak out and panic just to kind of <laughs> throw the whole thing into a, a loop, but uh, I don't. Other times we'll, we'll be on the way someplace and it's like um, they'll panic because we forgot something. You know, they'll say things like, oh no, we're on the way to a birthday party, but we don't have a birthday present. Oh no, what are we going to do about dinner? Oh no, we didn't bring cash because we're going to go to the movies afterwards. And all the while we're like, yeah, we already shot for the birthday present. It's sitting in the trunk. You know, dinner's going to be at the party and there's 10 bucks in your pocket. Like, we've thought this through, right? Like, we actually think about things before we get in the car to go do them. Because, but there's this panic, right, The kids have. And so over time, there's this confidence or this trust built that, that parents, the ones who need to know, actually know. And there's a trust that develops. And because parents know, there's a, there's a confidence, there's a trust that happens there. And so friends, as we think about the panic that we feel at times. Remember that your father knows. He knows. Even when you don't know, he knows. He's got it. He's got it in ways that you and I do not and will not ever understand. He's prepared. He's good at getting his way. Rest in that. There's an instinct we have when we come on, like, come on to an accident scene, for example. Right? Our first question is, has someone called the authorities? Are the people who need to know in the know? This is the position the Christian is in. We can always know that he knows. Now, this is not to make light of our suffering. A mature parent will, will not despise a, a panicking child. God doesn't mock even distrusting children. Praise the Lord, right? He invites us out of anxiety and into his active care. He doesn't mock us for that. So even when we don't understand what God is up to, we can trust him to show us when we need to know. There are some things we'll never need to know. There are some things we'll need to know at certain times. There are some things that we'll need to know when it's happening, and God knows the difference between all of those things. And He's our good Father, and He will tell us. 
Not to jump too much into what's coming, but when David and his men return to Ziklag, they find that it's burned and pillaged with their families missing. Their immediate return allows them to be able to track down the enemies and recapture their livelihoods and families. Getting stuck in a battle that was not theirs to fight would have probably meant their inability to see their families again. But they didn't know that. And it's a good thing that God sees what they didn't see. And God knows what they didn't know. So the plans that confused them became a grace to them in just a matter of a few days. So friends, there is a comfort in knowing that the one who needs to know, knows. Second sub-point under that first one is that because God reigns in confusion... He reigns in confusion even when evil is involved. Did you notice what were God's primary instruments in saving David from himself? Level-headed pagan commanders. That's how God chose to deliver David. If you're in God's family, you are within his security and care. He is always nearer and stronger than our enemy. And while it's true that confusion is oftentimes the currency of our enemy, our God controls the market. And we must remember this. How do we know this? How do we know that God is in authority, even over evil? Well, when was God's enemy most blatantly active? If you think back through history, wasn't it opposing our Lord and stirring discontent towards him? Wasn't it like riling up the bloodthirsty crowds? Wasn't it leveraging the political climate of Rome and the disgusting religiosity of the Jewish leadership to charge the innocent Son of God to crucifixion? Wasn't his most blatant attempt at usurping God's role the crucifixion of God's divine Son? And who did those things serve? On his most blatant, active day, the enemy of God served the purposes of God and the plans of God and accomplished the salvation of God. And so just because evil is involved does not mean that God is not. He is sovereign over evil. He will have his way. He will do what he wants, no matter what. So remember the cross when you are tempted to think that evil is acting independently. It's not. He's over it. Even when the evil is our own, God is at work within his children. One commentator said, God's mercy and patience are not exhausted when we choose our foolish Philistias. Yahweh's mercy can find David even amongst the Philistines. There's a comfort in that. God reigns in confusion even when evil is involved. Third sub-point. God reigns in confusion, so stockpile his faithfulness and remember. Stockpile his faithfulness and remember. I think it'd be valuable to spend time considering the following question. How has God been quietly faithful when you were confused? Looking back over the course of your life, how has God been quietly faithful when you were confused? Listen to Dale Ralph Davis' comments on God's subtle presence in this chapter. He says, Is it not then the task of the church and of the individual believer 
to go back over life and experience and try to itemize those moments when Yahweh was clearly but quietly present to save and support? As you ponder the ground you've traveled, the murky stuff the Lord has carried you through, the twists and turns of your life, can you not see glimpses of silent mercy, of quiet care? There was no noise or tempest. Yahweh was there, but not obviously. As I did this over my life, it was very instructive to me to see the, the constancy of God's work when I thought he stopped or when he took a weekend off or something. I remember with Bree thinking, how in the world is God going to raise money for us to adopt a child internationally? I cannot see a way that that's going to work. I can't see it. I was confused about the way forward. I remember Kelly and I in difficult days of Calvary when we were challenged to follow our convictions as elders. And we had no idea how it would pan out. And we couldn't see. Remember when he first proposed this idea of a merger and Tim and I were, really had no idea what would come of it. We couldn't see what was ahead. And redemption, there will be the next thing, right? You here in Sonoma County know how the fog rolls in every evening, right? Almost. And when that does, we need to remember to remember. We need to stockpile his faithfulness. So I know that was long, but that was the first implication. It was a short text, so forgive me. Um, the first implication was that God reigns even in our confusion. The second implication of this text is to note why David, and I would say we, can have this kind of confidence in God's good plans. The second implication is that God protects his people. God protects his people. You might be thinking, it's easy to say that God reigns in confusion, but it's hard to trust in that. Like It feels like a road with very few assurances. I mean, assuming that David made a dumb decision by trusting the Philistines, why did God still protect him? You know, why didn't he do what we do as parents and step back and just let natural consequences take their course and just kind of grin a little bit out of the side of our mouth? Why doesn't he do that? And why doesn't God, for example, extend the same mercies to Saul when he does some harebrained thing like hire a medium? Chapter 28. Does God bail out everyone in this way? Does he ensure that everything works out well in the end for everyone? Well, the obvious answer is no. He demonstrates a certain special covenant love for his chosen people. Now, Saul was chosen to be king, that's true. But his uh, self-sufficient, solve-it-yourself kind of salvation was not of God's uh, variety, right? Saul relied on himself, and he got the kind of salvation that man can accomplish, which is no salvation at all. Have you noticed that pattern of, of Saul throughout this whole book? This marks him as a person who's not in true covenant relationship with the God of Scripture. He's hardening. But then there's David, and David is this different story, right? He's, is he flawed? Absolutely. 
Does he make seriously sinful and regrettable choices? Yes, he does. Like probably this, you know, scenario. But there's a repentant reflex in David. There's an eventual humility. We find even in the next chapter, in chapter 30, his own people turn on him, and in 30 verse 6 it says, But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. Two verses later it says, He inquired of the Lord, in direct contrast to what Saul was doing. Right? So do you see the difference between Saul and David? The contrast between the self-made man and the God-formed man. They're different things. And one is a mark of being God's covenant people. So the reason why David could walk with assurances is because he was trusting the God he loved, though imperfectly, while Saul despised the fact that God was in his way all the time. David's trust in God was imperfect but sincere. Saul's trust in himself was perfect and misplaced. And that's the difference. Imperfect but sincere, trust in the Lord. That's what marks the children of God, doesn't it? We cannot continue in persistent sin and call ourselves to be children of God, 1 John tells us. And those hard verses have a, have a comforting side to them. It means that we're protected as God's children, as His people. When we act like David and we do dumb things and we just say, well, God will figure it out. He will do the best thing. Now, this isn't a blank check. Like, go and be dumb and God will bail you out of it. Okay, I'm not saying that. <laughs> Sometimes the most loving thing God can do is let us have the consequences that we've asked for. But we know that there's ultimate protection because of what Christ has done. And that's the difference. We know that because we are attached to Jesus Christ and the glory of God, that he will see his comp- the project through. And he will complete the process of sanctification to where we are with him in the end. And we'll be with him as we see him as he is. And so the question is, are you God's child? Are you on the self-made track or on the God-formed track? Are you insistent on your timing and methods? Or are you open to his timing and methods, strange though they may seem to be? And becoming his child is simple. You must understand that God is indeed your creator and authority. He made you for his purposes, not merely your own. And this means that that our initial attempts to live life on our own terms are, are actually rebellion. Rebellion of the worst variety. We break God's law and intention. We flagrantly disregard him and offend him. And the right response to treating a creator this way is death and separation forever. But instead, the wronged king, the wronged creator, initiates a rescue plan that involves sending his divine son to live a perfect life, which qualified him to die in the place of sinners, trading his righteous life for ours. This payment for sin was made on the cross when he was crucified, and then three days later, he was risen, proving that he paid fully and finally that eternal bill of sin and demonstrating his authority over everything that's wrong with us and the world. He then ascended to God and he will return to judge the world one day. And so God offers us an in if we do two things. First, we must acknowledge our sin. We are hopeless without God's intervention. 
We must agree with God that we not only sin, but that we are sinners. Second, we must trust in what Jesus has done to make us right with God through his death and resurrection. This trust is an active and ongoing trust that by God's grace changes us and changes how we live. So I ask again, are you God's child? Are you under the protection of him? If you are, you have assurances that even the dark seasons of your life will serve his glory and your good. And that's good on days like the day that David had standing at that battle line looking at the Israelites thinking, what in the world am I going to do? God's covenant love protected him. As we wrap up, uh, I want to point these two implications to to the person of Jesus. Our two implications were that God reigns even in our confusion and God protects his people. And both of those things point us to Jesus. The first one does, because if you're a Christian, you're a living example of how God did good to you while you were confused, unwilling, and uninterested. If you don't know what he's doing, trust what he's told you that he will do. Trust him to bring you into the loop when it's best. Trust in what he's done through the cross. If he rescued you out of darkness, he'll see you through the fog. For the second one, what greater protection can we ask for than the blood of Jesus Christ? Is there anything more sure and certain than that? We are totally secure from our greatest threat because of Jesus. The most important critical things are established and secure and they're fine. And we can walk in that confidence. Yes, we can go to our Father panicked and, and, and struggling, and, but the, the important thing is to go to Him with those things and to trust Him with them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank You that Your sovereign will is in the backdrop of 1 Samuel 29. That there were... A lot of things wrong with David, with the situation, with what was happening. And God, even though David left confused, and every person in this chapter left confused, you weren't. And your purposes were, were fully fulfilled in what took place in this confusing scene And Father, I pray you'd help us to to transfer that image into our lives as we struggle with confusion. God, there are many here who are in the midst of very difficult scenarios, who can't see the way forward. And I pray, God, that you'd provide not crystal clear clarity, but that you'd provide that reflex to trust You'd provide a refuge in prayer. You'd provide comfort in knowing who you are. You'd you'd provide assurances in the gospel. You'd help us to look to the cross to know your intentions with our lives. 
And God, for those who, who the fog is lifted and it's a bright, sunshiny day, I pray you just prepare them, help them to learn to trust you again and again, God, to distrust our own um, fleshly thinking and to remember that we know the one who knows. God, at the end of the day, that's sometimes all we have. And so I just pray that you would teach us to live on that, for that to be sufficient. Because one day, God, the clouds will lift and everything will be clear. And our sufferings will be sensible. And the small, petty things that seem so important to us will not matter at all. And so balance our perspective. Refresh our priorities. Help us to trust you and run to you and seek you first in these things, God. God, I thank you for the fact that you're our shepherd, as David says so eloquently in in Psalm 23. And I thank you that that your goodness and your mercy pursue him even when he spent time with the Philistines. May that refresh us, comfort us, challenge us, do all the things that you intend to do with this chapter, Holy Spirit. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.